Welcome to the show, The Suicide Prevention Show, where we're making suicide a thing of the past. And I am super excited that you're here. You are in for a treat. Our guest this episode is none other than Anne Greco. And we are going into a conversation that nobody wants to talk about and that we absolutely must. So everything you never wanted to know about this topic, no topic is off limits on this show. And so be prepared to participate. Here we go. So Anne, there you are. It's miracle. How are you? Jackie. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. And I want to just greet the uh, listeners and so happy here to be with you. And, and thank you for investing in this mission and, and in your time in yourselves. So really uh, great. Yes, we do appreciate everyone who's taking the time to participate by showing up, listening in, maybe even leaning in. You might learn a thing or two, but now we're going to take them on this journey. And tell me, actually, tell everybody, not just me, but let's talk about how you ended up doing what you do and what you've learned along the way, because you're in a unique position in this field. Okay. I am a clinician. Uh, that's my background. Uh, I'm a licensed mental health counselor, and I've been doing that for about 18 years, which uh, really qualifies me to talk about the topic, uh, have a lot of examples of case studies if they become relevant during our conversation today. Uh, I uh, also am a solopreneur, so I really resonated a lot with the previous conversation. A lot of what Steve had to say was really fabulous. Uh, and even the first person who talked about happiness spent a lot of time talking about those things as well. Uh, and uh, what brought me here is that uh, Jackie, you and I had had a conversation and I work with a broad spectrum of people. Uh, I have not stopped working uh, the way things have changed socially and in our society, have lots of people coming in to have conversations uh, and um, there has been an increase in people's feelings of hopelessness, people's feelings of sadness and uh, coping with uncertainty. And I think what we came up with that we talk about with everybody today is the ability to have difficult conversations for one reason or another. And a lot of you out there may have understood and been faced with a situation where you have had to have a conversation that you thought about and maybe thought twice about and then maybe even hesitated. And if you're like Jackie and I, more than likely you read all the literature, you conducted a full-blown literature review, and you consulted all of the people that you know in your network to make sure it was viable before you set out. So uh, if you have that uh, perspective, you are not alone. <laughs> and that's a key element in uh, what the subject we're talking about today is you are not alone. So there we go. All right, so even in the topic of suicide, you're not alone. And the biggest challenge in the area of suicide is that suicide is a very lonely activity. It, is a, it's a, it comes from a complete place of disconnect and aloneness. And so what, that's the one thing, that was one of the first things that I had to learn about suicide in order to go on this mission. And this, you know, this is a very personal mission 
for me. And what pulled you into this field? I think that I have always wanted to help people. I've always been uh, interested in how people work, how they operate. Uh, it's just something that seemed very interesting to me in and of itself. And, and certainly I'm part of that. Uh, I think that I cope with a lot of things on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, I have a strong commitment to work on my own stuff. I am a work in progress. Uh, and I'm really interested in people being able to be open about lots of topics, including the issue of suicide, managing a major mental health condition like depression, anxiety, and even mood swings. Uh, and as I moved closer to the topic in my journey, uh, I realized that it really was a fit. It was really a way that I could empower people and, uh, and make a difference. Uh, and I will warn you, some of the things that I'm going to say may be kind of unusual, uh, only because I look at people who consult in mental health, who want to talk about it, are the healthiest people where people say, oh, if we talk about that, you know, there's some sort of a, an issue. Actually, everyone else in my world is out on the loose and the people who are healthiest are in talking about it in some way, shape or form. Well, that was really interesting because when I was doing my research for the TEDx stage, I realized that there's a little line in the Center for Disease Control's information on suicide that says, that the inability to talk about suicide is actually in and of itself a risk indicator. Yeah. And I went, oh, you know, and, and I came from the other side, you know, the, the other side of the spectrum, after my daughter's attempts and she was, you know, counseling therapy, medications, interventions, hospitalizations, we did it all. And when we were done, it was sort of like, okay, we're done. We don't have to talk about that anymore because heaven forbid I should put the thought back into her head. Mm -hmm. And then I hit that line in the Center for Disease Control and I went, holy crap, that mythology could have cost me my kid mm -hmm. because it was just a myth that, that you could put the thought back in their head. Yeah. You know, I'm, and, yeah. You know, and in the assessment, of suicide if i have somebody who comes in my office i will ask them in a depression screening if that is an issue and for some people it happens when the depression becomes elevated it is actually something that we monitor to notice the severity in terms of mild moderate or severe depression for other people though, that is their baseline. And I'm basing what I say on my experience of 16 years and working in a practice with two psychiatrists and seeing people on psychiatric medication and how they look and how they operate with, under, you know, with depression. And for some of them, their baseline, even with medication management, was an intermittent form of suicidal thinking. And so as a result, then we have to basically go into more detail, which it might be beyond the scope of this interview, into what constitutes 
a lethality assessment. And of course, for the purposes of our listeners and our participants today, you know, it, it is about, you know, I think it's about being connected. It's about really talking to somebody you love and really being interested in what is going on out there. And somebody said it on Facebook. It was a beautiful share uh, from my friend, Catherine Marshall. And it is people are coping with a lot of things that they are not talking about. And unless we can bridge the subject, make it comfortable, make it easy, make it something that it is acceptable to bring up, they will continue to just hold it right back in. And of course, the internalization of those feelings and those thoughts can elevate the symptoms of depression and anxiety. And of course, I'm going to say a really dirty word. It's a four-letter word now. I'm going to get into it, Jackie. Jump right in is risk. You know, with all of these things that we're talking about, we're really talking about risk assessment and risk management. And of course, like so many things going on in this day and age and in general with, with mental health is there's a risk assessment scale. You know, how do we measure risk? How do I know if my family member is at risk? How do I know if my finances are at risk or my business is at risk? You know, how do I know if I'm putting myself at risk if I leave my house and, and, uh, and basically, you know, go uh, and visit, uh, uh, the fresh market or Trader Joe's or something like that. Yeah. You, we, we're going to unpack this one a lot. Okay? Sure. Because in the middle of this with lethality, which is, you know, what are the, what's the risk of them actually taking a lethal action against themselves? Yeah. The, so it's, it's, it's what I'm assuming that meant in the middle it, of there. It depends upon the person and it also depends upon the mental state because there's that changes. Somebody who is... I was yeah. just trying to get a definition of the word, Anne. Oh, lethality. Well, yeah. well the, okay, lethality, I'm so sorry. Lethality is uh, something that could be lethal basically right. Some, so, so, something so that elevates the chance of dying. Yeah. Go yeah, ahead. When you're assessing the lethality in, a, in, in risk, it's just, what are the odds that this person's going to take a lethal action? I, you know, it's, 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 it's that kind of assessment. And one of the real big challenges is that as much as I, and this is full disclosure, when I started on this journey with the teen suicide prevention society, I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to talk about this side of it. I'm like, no, we don't have to talk about that. We're going to be pure prevention. We're going to talk pure. Pre now, all of our work, all of our training programs of suicide prevention advocates are all in the pure prevention realm. We don't do anything in the intervention realm. But my refusal on my first summit to talk about the intervention realm was a disservice. And I didn't realize it was a disservice. And this was brought home to me on my last summit where someone said that suicide prevention for them was a daily struggle. It was a battle with their depression. And they objected to my attitude that suicide prevention can be fun. Mm -hmm. And so this whole discussion of what's intervention and what's prevention, yeah. Um, brought a lot of clarity into the mission over the last few weeks. And it's an ever-evolving mission. So we're talking about intervention. We're talking about assessing risk of people with a known risk factor already. They've already been um, either self-disclosed or someone around them has developed an awareness that there's an issue 
whether they've got a diagnosis or whether there's just a disquiet on the part of a family member that says, eh, something's not right with you. Yeah, but either way, they're known to be at risk or assumed to be at risk. And so when we're looking at that, and, and when my personal opinion, this is the realm of trained intervention specialists. This is not a place for a family member to try to fix this or, or figure it out. This is at the bare minimum, the 800 number that we put out and we'll put it out again, which is the, um, for the suicide prevention hotline in the United States. And don't worry, Katie's on it. She'll put it in the chat. The other piece of this is that then there's the professionals like yourself. And when we're talking about suicide, we're talking about lethal intent. And I try to be really, really clear because people are like, oh, yo, especially when it comes to teens, there's a lot of confusion about, oh, it's a cry for attention. And I'm going, are you talking about suicide attempt or are you talking about you know, self-injury? Because there's this spectrum and it's all about intent. Mm -hmm. And so let's go there. Let's help some family people and, and friends unpack this. Is there a difference in how a family member could, or maybe this is an appropriate place to use the, sh the should word, um, you know, is there, is there a difference in how they would respond to uh, something that they believe has lethal intent and something that they don't think has lethal intent? Well, if there is any doubt about safety, mm. it is very important for everyone to know and it's okay uh, that you, you won't overreact in this case if you have a concern to, to seek help. And if there is something going on in the home that is of a certain level of intensity, you know, and right on the heels of lethality, we talk about uh, violence, you know, in the home or other types of behaviors that are, you know, just, they have high risk behaviors. You would want to contact someone, uh, uh, whether it is uh, to dial 911 in a really severe case. The other part of it would be if you can take someone to the emergency room. Now I'm talking about after hours, things are closed, it's on the weekend, because that's when that kind of thing usually happens. Uh, at the same time, in the home, there's lots of things that people and family members can notice. You know, changes in sleeping, changes in eating, some of those are really simple loss of motivation, loss of interest in daily activities. You know, if somebody was really good at doing school and there was a decline in their attention and their ability to engage in their studies, it might be time to just find resources, find out qualified people to discuss it with, find ways to socially involve and offer support for teens. And I did want to mention that for Men and uh, teenagers, a lot of times depression may not look like I can't get out of bed. What you're going to see is a lot of irritability, a lot of negativity, and uh, you're going to see a, a sharp increase in that. And basically, also, you'll have to determine if counseling is actually the correct intervention for them. Well, that is talking face-to-face. -face. Yeah. How would you, you said you have to determine. 
And the answer is no, a family member doesn't, in my opinion. Well, yeah, yeah. well you a would have to- family member has to get help because- Yeah, yeah, you'd have to check in. Absolutely. You'd have to check in and just so that everyone doesn't get, what I'm thinking of, I'm thinking a couple of steps ahead, you say you're going to schedule the appointment, you bring them in, and they, individual counseling, just may, maybe even group, may not be the intervention for them, meaning there's lots of therapies, there's equine-assisted therapies, there's art therapies, there's game therapies, there's a lot of other treatment modalities to be able to look into and check into that, that can offer if they, if they can't talk. Because you stumbled on something that I think is a good one to really mention and kind of highlight a bit, is that people have difficulty sometimes discussing it when it's going on in here and in here. And so as a result, they may not want to open up and really verbalize all of these things. So if you put them in a setting in front of a medication provider for psychiatric meds or a counselor therapist, they, they will sit and they will not know how to engage or make it productive and it will be difficult for them. So it's not um, a one size fits all world. It never has been. Yeah. It's not a one size fits all world. And what we know to be true is that we're all at risk at some level. And this is the final conclusion that I had to come to when I was doing the research. And what I came up with was an acronym, W-A-A-R, war with two A's. And it's, we're all at risk. And from that perspective, then it's a lot easier to normalize the conversation. Because it's not that there's something wrong with me that's normal to have some uh, somewhere on the spectrum. We're all at risk. We're all somewhere on the spectrum, on this continuum. And so because of that, it's okay. It makes it a little easier to have the conversation. So as you know, that's what I teach. I teach people who are not mental health professionals, who are not in the intervention realm. I teach them how to safely, calmly, easily help people break the silence. And it's people who don't know they're at risk, who don't have any known risk factors, and they all volunteer for the conversation. If you've got a family member who you think needs a conversation, at that point, you've crossed the line. We are no longer talking pure prevention. Now we're talking intervention. And now you're going to be working with somebody like Ann. So, you know, at least some place to get started. And thank you for popping that into the chat. So, Ann, I loved what you said. If you have a situation where there's a potential for risk, you cannot over react that's that was like okay yay everybody write that down you cannot overreact and you don't have to use big fancy words you can talk to your loved one you don't have to be talking in terms of big scary things like anxiety and depression you can say notice some mood swings yo we're starting to swing let's talk about it yeah. I mean, it can be that simple. And so I love the fact that you were able to bring that kind of language into this conversation that can be so fraught with, you know, so full of long, multi-syllable words, um, which I love to make fun of and call them multi-syllabic. 
you know, multi, you know, words that have a lot of different syllables in them and people get mm, intimidated. All right, let's go there. We're going to go where angels fear to tread. What are the top five reasons people will not seek professional help or intervention? I think that there could be a, a generational conversation, a family conversation around it. You know, that is just something we don't talk about because there is something wrong. Uh, I think uh, that's number one. Number two is that I believe that people will, in, uh, especially in a state of depression, they will feel isolated and alone. And the more they engage in that type of cycle, uh, they isolate, uh, the less they're around people, the less they want to be around people, the more they feel that they are alone and that nobody else understands and could understand what's going on with them. Mm -hmm. uh, I definitely think that changes, uh, things that seem to um, fall apart, uh, that could be right now employment. Uh, so I have a little like a number three, I think with an A, B, C, D, that could be um, uh, issues with work, not having work. Uh, it could okay. be a bad breakup. It so could we're be not talking about causes here for a second. I'm asking what are the reasons they would not seek help? Oh, that they would not seek help. Yeah, okay. They would not seek help. And you, you nailed it with the first two. First two. Oh, yeah. I just got off chart. Okay. okay. So um, another, re another reason would be money. Uh, they have an irrational belief that there is not help and support out there. Um, another one is their reputation. They may feel that they have a reputation among others to, um, to stand up to a certain level and, and uh, worried about other people thinking about it. Um, another thing is that uh, fear. Fear of what? Fear of lots of things. Fear of uh, what happens if they start to open up and explore what's happening with them. Uh, fear of having to say that I'm confused and I need help to figure this out. Um, so that's the one that has the ABCD. Uh, it, it could be uh, lots of things. Worry that if they open this up, it will snowball into something larger and they just don't want to go there. Um, okay, so that makes a lot of sense. And I was going to say, when, when you started talking, I went, oh yeah, they could absolutely be afraid of the label, that there's something wrong with them, that, you know, that they'll get a diagnosis. And then now all of a sudden they, they have a mental health issue. Mm -hmm. And I think fear of the label is a big one. And I, and I actually think it's really, um, at times, really warranted because we live in a society that looks at labels rather than at people. Yes. And so, you know, if we peel back all the labels and we just started seeing people again as whole creatures, you know, we all have our mental health challenges. Anytime that you're not in a state of bliss, joy, happiness, you know, or effective, uh, productive something that, that you're not feeling like you're moving under your own volition, you got, you're, you're dealing with a mental health challenge. It's just not in the DSM, whatever number we're up to now. It's not in the diagnosis book. Um, well, we call it the degree to which it impairs functioning, you know. <laughs> oh, that's you know, a mouthful. I like it. People have... Plenty of people have anger, they have depression, they have things that they cope with, and they find a way to manage it. 
most of the time. Uh, when it becomes unwieldy, when it becomes unmanageable, and that's where going back to what I had inserted, uh, I want to insert it, it's a good thing to insert, put it in the wrong place before, but uh, it's, it's the timing. You know, something happens around them circumstantially, and then it just becomes too much. Yeah, it's the person who's been slugging along and they're doing okay. They're yeah. doing, yeah, we're good. We're good. They, they might, well, in my world, fine is an acronym for frenzied, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. <laughs> so I use good instead of fine, even though it's not grammatically correct. Yeah, they're, they're, they're getting by. Yeah. But it's, they're, they're like the camel with all the straw. You know, they're making it until that one last piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they say the straw that broke the camel's back. It's when you've been stockpiling all of these stressors. And then one more thing comes along and it's, you know, just more than the system can handle. The ability to be stress hardy, the ability to be resilient under stress, when we have all these things to cope with, the, you know, I dislike this concept of uh, coping skills because mm -hmm. I think that coping skills sound like hard work to develop. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm looking for another language. What can we do that's going to make it easy and fun for people to develop some more emotional resilience? so that they are less likely to have that final straw. Okay, and as I have uh, developed uh, from clinical work into offering the coaching practice, you know, my, my platform is about practical solutions. Uh -huh. It's about putting in practices, creating okay. habits around certain things. And of course, where do I start? And this is where some of the weirdness comes in. Everybody uh, brace yourself. Yay. Stress, stress is a resource. Stress gives you a lot of data that you can collect about what's happening with you. And you can actually learn to work with that stress. And of course, for the small business owners that I work with, a lot of times the, the stress is their pathway to solid entrepreneurship, to increasing productivity, to increasing profit, and lots of skills, lots of conditions that we have. They just have this double edge to them, Jackie, where there is the downside, which people sort of notice and they feel the pain, ouch. And then there's the other side where it can become very powerful depending upon the place where you stand. And so the practices, if you had asked me about practices, I mean, some of them are just so simple, you know, and, and it's going to sound repetitive. It's about being able to take care of yourself. It's about remembering what is the most important for yourself, for your family members, getting back to those basics. Uh, it is, and this is my wheelhouse, of course, as a cognitive behavioral therapist, is noticing the limiting beliefs and really being able to work with what limits us. Someone comes in and they are talking about saying that they're unhappy and that will happen in my office fairly frequently and i will say well let's talk a little more like you've been saying to everybody today let's unpack it a little bit and what is let's talk about happy are you happy with how you look and they're like well yeah i'm happy with that well are you happy with your work well no i'm not happy with that 
Uh, are you making money? Yes. Are you happy that you, yes, I am. Are you, do you have a good family? Yes. I love my, I'm happy with my family. I love them, you know, and, and I have this other issue, but my point is that happiness is a spectrum. And of course, if we can get to the belief system, thoughts lead to feelings, lead to behavior. This is just one school of thought in counseling. Basically thoughts lead to feelings, lead to behavior. Then people can really put in a lot of things and it's so tailored and specific to the individual what it is in my experience, Jackie, but it really does create this resilience that really has them be able to just take a powerful stand around any set of circumstances that they have coming up. Okay, so I, I missed a step in here. Okay, because trust me, I get the concept. I mean, I for me, the cycle of results is um, thoughts, feelings, behaviors. Okay, so behaviors are the only thing that get you results. So that's always the piece for me is what's the tangible that you can see. And the thoughts come from our beliefs. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's sort of like the root of everything is our BS, our belief systems. Mm -hmm. And so as you're saying that, just the awareness of this gives people a more powerful place to stand. Yes. Okay. So if they, if just this simple awareness that your actions are driven by your emotions and your emotions are driven by your thoughts and your thoughts are coming from what you believe. And when you can start asking these questions about breaking it into smaller pieces, mm -hmm. you can start to see, that maybe you had a belief system that said it had to be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm not happy. Well, but you're happy than this example you gave the person's happy with the majority of their life. There's only one piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, and what they're not, and then they start to see, well, the unhappiness is focused on something really specific. And if they can get and, and sort of get, get the distinction between I'm unhappy, blanket unhappy to, well, here's where I'm unhappy, then can come the practical solutions that you were talking about, or that I, I call them practical solutions. Mm -hmm. They're not coping skills, but they're ways of approaching how, how you're feeling. Well, I love ways of approaching how you do things. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, I just, I love the distinction because it, it practices are just that their practices. You know, if I want to get good at playing the trumpet, which I did try that for a few years, it was not a happy time for the rest of the family. Yeah, but the, if I wanted to get good at that, I needed to practice it. So if I want to get good at having the results that I want, then I get good at the actions, but the actions have to come from this place of emotion. Yeah. So focusing on the practices that give me this emotional edge, yeah, I, I really like this concept. Okay, so lay it on me. What's a practice? So um, if I can, I'm just going to use the model of, of solopreneur, like uh, what you were talking about with Steve. Okay, so just imagine if a solopreneur can put in three practices. One of them is that they were going to wake up in the morning and their first practice was to Google and research speaking gigs. Set practice. They're going to do that. Next practice, they are going to set up connection conversations. These are the people that they met in their mastermind. These are the people that they met somewhere or they know that they are going to have just a very social conversation to find out how they can help them, how the other can help the other. And, and that's another block of time. Do people still do that? 
Do they still oh. have social conversations? Oh, hell yes. Excuse me. Of course. <laughs> anyway, I hope they do. So, and, and then the third one is that they have their list of people. And these are the people that they haven't spoken to, but they've thought about and they want to follow up. Maybe they have had um, a connection with them in the past. Maybe they have worked with them, signed up for a program, and they are going to have or create set aside a time to talk and have a sales conversation. If an entrepreneur implemented those three practices, how would, and this is for anyone who's on, on, on with us right now, how would they feel? What would their world look like? So consistency counts. That's the whole purpose. And the question is, yeah, yeah. You know, right. at the same time, how would that look if you had that practice? If we talk about, let's say a parent has a teen that they want setting aside a time where they can uh, basically uh, sit down and talk with their teen mm -hmm. and really have the state of the union, whether they do it once a week, whether they do it once every other day, you know, and don't even have to call it that because teens like informality in my experience, they don't like hubbub, you know, just really <laughs> drawing it in and really don't let them know you're, you're doing that. Um, yeah, so, so practices can just be anything that you come up with, things that you feel led to do, drawn to do, and where to look is those things that you've been saying, I mean to do that, or I would love to do that, or I want to do that, you know, get, get into that world. You can get into the, to the, to the, a little bit into the should world to snatch some of those things out of there, you know, and things that you really like that inspire you. And you can have a lot of fun too, when you're adding, you're adding stuff in, you know, so. You're going to have to talk to me a little bit about that because you said should. And so now I got to know more. Well, you grab if So somebody has been saying, you know, I should make a point to follow up with, um, with Mary. It's been four weeks. I da, 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 da. Well, it doesn't, for lots of people, it doesn't become reality until they put it on their calendar and they actually make that phone call. And that's the implementation about it. All right. So a should yeah. needs to be a schedule. <laughs> I can't oh, quite get I forgot, it. I forgot you have all this stuff attached to shoulds. Okay. So so yeah. basically so if somebody's saying that they should do something, then the, the next step is to schedule it. Yeah, you know, I mean, wouldn't it be nice and, and, and how I look at it as wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be fun? Would it break up the boredom if I got on the phone with uh somebody, Murgatroyd, who I haven't really had a chance to find out how things are going? Find out, you know, how her her Yorkie is doing these days you know, kind of thing. So got it. Um, so the first, yeah. the first one was research, uh, research for speaking gigs or networking events uh, for anyone. Uh, and that was perfect. What they said, uh, what uh, Katie, uh, that's okay. Oh, I done. Care, so yeah, yeah. Re research for speaking gigs and, uh, and uh, networking events, social conversations, connection conversations and sales conversations. Mm -hmm. I know it's better to call it reach out. It doesn't sound as uh, formidable. Well, the reality is that we don't know how to have sales conversations anymore. And this is part of the big challenge. And so one of the things I'll be unpacking um, tonight when I'm pulling behind the scenes and behind, pulling back the curtains, it's, it's a lost art in a lot of ways. So what is it, since you're now working, I mean, you have kind of jumped ship, okay? I mean, you, know, you left the clinical world and now you're over here in the entrepreneurial space helping business owners. 
And I'm going, all right, now you're doing something that most clinicians and practitioners never master for themselves, which is sales. You know, they don't get the business side of their business because they don't think they are in business. Doctors fall into the same boat. You know, yeah. it's all business. If you're solving a problem and making money for solving a problem, that's the definition of a business. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to this, we're going to call it the psychology of sales, but not in a manipulative way, not in, you know, using psychology to, to, to bring someone into your business, whether they're a good fit or not. But the psychology that a solopreneur or an entrepreneur has to master in order to do, to pick up the phone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I put it as reach outs because you never know if you're going to get a person anymore. I mean, you could, you could be reaching out five times before you actually hit a human and that would be a good day. And then the, yeah, and then, then there would be another category and those are the booked sales calls. Mm -hmm. Okay, when you, and this is what we love. I don't know about anybody else, but I love it because I get to help people. I get to support them, you know, and you're right. It isn't very salesy. It's about really making a difference for a person. Like mm -hmm. if we can at all create a, uh, create a uh, transformational experience, that's what makes the conversation really valuable, you know, mm -hmm. and if they choose to work with us, they, they will, you know. But they I think, have a choice. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's really what it is about. So if we take, and that's going to remove all the drama from this conversation about sales for people. What if it's a booked call, you have an appointment to talk to someone, and the purpose is to help them have whatever transformation they need next. Mm -hmm. And if you develop a connection, offer to help them more. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, that's what it is. Yeah. And that's why it's so fun, you know, and at the same time, do things stop people, you know, I'm in the boat with this one, because it can stop me, things can get in the way, you know, and how do we learn quickly? Like, I love what you said before about just really being able to zero in identifying it, just knowing that it's there, then you can make your, your plan, then you could create practices around it to because it's predictable. I mean, it, you know, everybody knows sort of what the patterns are. Uh, in terms of what you do, what you, you know, get involved in. And uh, yeah, I just think it's kind of cool to be able to have, have uh, strategies and, uh, and different things that, you know, well, if I do this, then I'll do that, you know. Well, I, I think you gonna, we're going to keep in that vein for just a few minutes because you said everybody knows the pattern. So just in case that there's somebody who's not everybody and that, that doesn't know the pattern, what, or what, what is the pattern? What does it look like? Okay, so that would mean just taking a look at what, you know, what you're doing. And of course, that would be something if they don't know to actually ask a coach, ask somebody who you know and respect. And you're talking about the pattern of a sales conversation? Now? I'm talking about the pattern that people fall into that hold them back. You know, oh, the things uh, that have them not meet a goal or the things that eventually lead to an elevation in uh, uh, limiting beliefs, um, it leads to depression, anxiety, you know, those mm -hmm. kind of things, meaning that being able to know what's happening, you know, there tangibly, uh, you know, is very valuable. And, uh, and uh, sometimes people can do it by journaling. That's one of the things that a practice, it's a good practice. And um, in my office in the counseling, uh, it's funny because I'll ask somebody to journal and then I'll 
here the next week about how they came back and didn't journal uh, because it was, and they feel really bad because they didn't. And, uh, and I don't know that that's the best way to use journaling, but, uh, but yeah, so. No, no, yeah, because if you're going to use it to beat yourself <laughs> up, then that might not be a practice that's going to serve you. I mean, yeah, we, yeah. we, we can get into the, the you know, hmm. Well, yeah. we're, I don't even know what the right language is, but we'll call them productive practices. <laughs> and if it's not productive, you don't want to practice that. <laughs> well, and it makes and it makes sense. I, I kind of like that because what are your current practices? You would mm -hmm. have to know to establish a baseline to be able to to note progress, to note notice an improvement. Uh, you know, and certain things, this is going to be kind of interesting to drop in. I know we still have a little bit of time left. Yeah. Progress may not look like complete resolution. So for example, if I have someone who's having angry outbursts and they were coming in the office, I would tell people to expect to see, this is how you measure the progress. Not that they're never going to have an angry kid or an angry spouse again, but to really measure the duration, the intensity, and, uh, and I just forgot the last one, D uh, duration, intensity, and frequency there we of, go. of the emotion or the, the, the negative, the behavior that people want, you know, are, are expecting to change, you know, and of course, definitely being aware and taking a look at that. And then that gives people a way to understand it. Year, some years ago, when uh, children had ADHD, parents would have a lot of difficulty offering some report about how the child was doing because there was difficulty focusing, hyperactivity, you know, and, and a whole host of behaviors, interrupting adults, et cetera. And so if we put a framework called intensity, duration, and frequency, they could speak to what stayed the same, what got better, and what elevated. And then that, of course, helped with whatever the uh, even though we're not, we're talking about prevention here, but that would help what would be the step, the, the interventions, which are the practices in my, it's similar to me in my world. It's similar yeah. that, that it's practices. It's a set of practices you're going to put in. Cool. Well, you know that we use very similar language around that because all of the suicide prevention advocates in the training program, they have practiced conversations on the topic of suicide and that in and of itself, breaking that silence. Yeah, that's why I made it where they're all practice conversations. And this concept of I can practice something, you know, let's go with practice, practice, practice. All right. So practicing measuring. Mm -hmm. This is something that most of us, no, I can't say that. This is something I wasn't raised with. I wasn't raised with the concept of observation for the purposes of measuring behavior change. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself would be a huge, huge life skill. I'm thinking, I'm going, okay, this is a good place to go. Yeah, a huge life skill, whether it's for a parent to be able to actually just sort of feel some comfort around that they've got a skill set that will allow them to pick up on changes. Mm -hmm. Because it is the changes that you alluded to earlier that that's how you assess risk is that what's changing. If you don't have a baseline, if you have, you know, we're going to say it the positive. If you do have a baseline, if you have developed a skill of observation where you're actually able to measure and, and notice, you know, this whole concept of behavior, you'll be able to tell when something changes. But without something to start with, without a baseline, it's really hard to tell. 
you know, like yeah. something changed. And sometimes feedback really helps us set up that criteria because when you think of the applications of what you just said, if you broaden that perspective, you can do that with anything. You can do that in any area of life as long as you know what the criteria is, where to look, and then what a way to kind of assess or monitor what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, you can uh, test and adjust. You can you can continue to. To, to work with that. That's a model. And, and a lot of us, you know, it's one thing to people to talk about uh, being a therapist, be, being a coach. We, we need as much support as everybody else. You know, we have stellar, stellar, superior, you know, support systems behind us because we're working on ourselves. We're working on ourselves all the time, you know, and still on the, in some uh, venues, I like to say in the media, we are, and in the movies, we always get the label of these quirky, weird people who well, are the, okay. you know, <laughs> you no, know, sometimes we do. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm talking about like how they portray therapists in the uh, in some of the movies. It's really funny. But uh, but at any rate, and the reality is, you know, sometimes things we do do give credence to that uh, view. <laughs> some so of the things they that, have on that, true. Yeah. On that quirky note, you're absolutely right. You can apply this concept to everything. This idea that if you start being a little more observant. You start breaking things down into duration, intensity, and frequency of behavior. Then when we're talking about those three behaviors, where we're talking about Googling for speaking gigs and opportunities to network and interact, and we're talking about having the peer-to-peer -peer conversations, and we're talking about having the um, practitioner, we're going to call it the, the, the coach to consumer, you know, what, whatever yeah. that is. I call them reach outs. The, the potential for a sales conversation. What we're talking about there is prospects, you know, the potential for a sales conversation. You can start noticing and tracking those things and notice whether your practice is increasing, you're actually spending more time, more discernment, more effectiveness, and out measuring it partly by the behavior, are you actually engaging in the behavior, but also by the results you're getting. Are you actually getting the names, the contact people that you could do a reach out to for a speaking gig? Because, and that's why, you know, it's, by the way, getting a speaking gig is a sales conversation, people. Yeah. <laughs> We're not, you know, sales conversations are not limited to prospects. Sales conversations happen when you're trying to figure out what to have for dinner with your family. No, this is, this is it's all sales. Um, and that was my tagline back when I was teaching sales, before I started teaching people how to sell themselves on staying alive. Yeah, it's, it's still sales. Yeah. It's still sales. And so all of this has been absolutely wonderful. And you've given a great deal of very practical things to practice. And um, you have a gift for people. So that'll end up in the show notes and it'll be in the chat box. And I so appreciate that because this ability to take a powerful stand is something that all of us can use more help with. The idea of having practical solutions to manage stress and overwhelm, and Katie took care of that for you. Um, oh, wow. Okay, so that's a very generous gift. Yeah. Um, so we'll leave those in the show notes for everyone, and we will move forward with this conversation. And we'll continue the conversation, Anne, because I don't think that the world of entrepreneurialism and this conversation around self-sabotage to the point of suicide, I don't think this is a conversation that we're going to be done with anytime soon. You're right. I think yeah. you're right. 
So thank you for being willing to spend part of your day with us here on the show. I really appreciate you. Thank you for having me.